If you brought a Bible with you today, please open it up to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21. If you didn't bring a Bible today, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. Acts chapter 21, the last couple of chapters, there's a recap. We're, we're following Paul through his final missionary journey, if you would. And last time we left him on the beach of Miletus with the elders of Ephesus, and he was saying farewell to them for the last time. He had told them very plainly that they would not see his face again. They understood that. It was a very emotional scene as we, as we study this, as they're, as they're separating for the last time. Paul continuing on now back towards Jerusalem and them returning home. And even as we look at chapter 21, we begin, it says, when they parted from them, that, you know, Paul, as he's leaving, that word parted literally means to tear away from the emotion that's in, just even in the words that are used there. And again, the love that they had for Paul and Paul had for them, very emotional departure as they now leave. But chapter verse one continues, when they had parted from them and set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes, and from there on to Patera. Having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there, was a, there the ship was to unload its cargo. I have a quick map up just to kind of follow again as we've been following along Paul's journey. The dotted purple line is his route back, and that's we see him leaving Miletus now, sailing past Cyprus to Tyre. Eventually, by our end of our study this morning, we'll, Paul will be in Jerusalem. Tells us that though he lands here at Tyre, this cargo ship that they were on, unloading its cargo would take a while, cargo ship unloading and reloading. And it says, verse 4, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. I like this initial piece of this as it tells us, you know, Paul, they land in this city, the, the city of Tyre. Big, big city, obviously port city, cargo being unloaded and loaded on and off. And you get to a, a, a city, a strange place, you know, don't have a lot of connections there. What's the first place that they do? What, what's the first people they seek out? It says disciples. They, that word, Paul, we mentioned this, that Luke record uses this word 28 times in the book of Acts. Every time it refers to believers, looking out believers, looking for the local believers that are there. No doubt coming to a strange place, and that's, we all do that, don't we? I mean, we want to connect with people we have something in common with, especially if we get to a strange place, a new place. As I mentioned even earlier in the announcements, most of us are here from somewhere else. We, we, not, very few of us grew up in, in the Phoenix area, especially very few of us, if any of us, grew up in Surprise. So when we move to an area, we like to connect with people that we know, people that maybe perhaps we're from that same area of the country as they are originally, those types of things. It's kind of funny how people that have nothing else in common but their favorite football team or something seem to get together, right? But wouldn't you all agree as believers that by far the best connection is to find other believers? 
getting to a place that's new and, and to, to connect with, with other believers. And no doubt, that's what Paul and his companions were desiring, just to get together, have that fellowship, that brotherly connection with one another. But I, I point out that to make a, a bigger point in our message this morning, because the word disciples is used, and that's important, again, to emphasize that these are believers, followers of the Lord Jesus. And it even tells us as we continue on that they were hearing from God. Notice it says, through the Spirit in verse 4. They were receiving, they were hearing from God, hearing from the Holy Spirit. But what was the message that they were giving to Paul? It says that they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been studying with us through this last couple of chapters, chapter 20 specifically, there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because look back with us here, if you would, in verse 22 of chapter 20. Paul, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, says this, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now, you see the contradiction, the problem there, right? The confusion. It tells us there very clearly that Paul said, bound by the Spirit, hearing from the Spirit, bound by the Spirit, that literally means he has no other choice but to go to Jerusalem. Here we see believers hearing from God, hearing from the Spirit, saying, don't go to Jerusalem. What do we do with that? Well, as I've been wrestling through that myself this week and, and thinking, there's, there's, it's called the inductive Bible study method. Has anybody heard of that inductive Bible study method? It's a great way to study through the Bible, especially even on a personal level. And there's three main components to it. The first is observation. The separate, second is interpretation. And the third is application. And literally, it's what does it say? What does the word of God say? What does it mean? And how do we apply it? And those simple steps that we go through. Now the problem comes, and I've taught several people in classes on how to do this and the proper way to do it. But the problem comes when during the quote-unquote observation stage, we slip out of observation and we start getting into interpretation, application, or even worse, speculation. Start, Start putting things into the text that aren't even there. For instance, oftentimes you'll use a story in the Bible, and what does it say? What does it, it just plain out say? And the story of Jesus walking on the water and then telling Peter to get out of the boat. And oftentimes when you're going through the observation, somebody will say, well, Peter was the only one who really wanted to go see Jesus. Well, what is, is that in the text? No. That's speculation. That's putting our own feelings into what it says. And during the observation phase, you have to be so careful with that. And why am I telling you all of this? Because the same is true when we hear from God. When God tells us something, when God reveals something to us. I believe that's the problem here because Paul says in every city... The Holy Spirit testifies to me that bonds and afflictions await me. He lands in Tyre, another city, 
and here comes the bonds and afflictions await. And here these disciples are saying, don't go. Bonds and afflictions await you there. Don't go. Putting in their own speculation that this can't be the will of God for you. you this can't, there must be a mistake. There must be a problem. Guys, there's only one proper interpretation for the word of God and any word that God might give us as believers. And that's what the Holy Spirit desires. That's what the Holy Spirit desires to speak. That's the only proper interpretation. And when we start trying to interpret a word that God might give us for somebody else, when we start trying to interpret and apply it, that's when a problem can get really big. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, told them that he was going to go to the cross, that he must suffer and die. And, and Peter loved Jesus, but he started putting his own twist on it. Well, that can't possibly, you'll never, that can never happen. What was Jesus' response to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. See, the enemy is going to do whatever he can to try to fight, come against the word of God, come against a word that is spoken. And guys, it's easy for us to slip into that speculation point. It's easy for us to let our personal experience or emotions or even bias get in the way. See, God desires through a word that he might give to us to confirm, never to confuse. Well, we're going to get develop that a little bit more in a minute. But before we leave this little section, notice they must have been feeling a tremendous amount of anxiety, fear. I mean, they're passionate about Paul not going and Paul is going. So they have to be anxious about that. And, and there's a cure for that. And we see it as it tells us here, verse five, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, because Paul will write, to the church in Philippi, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Doesn't tell us here in this text, but we can know because the word of God does not lie. As they knelt down and they prayed together, no doubt they went home with a sense of peace even as Paul continued on. Well, it tells us now, verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. So they go and they connect with the, the brothers there too, the followers of the Lord. On the next day, verse 8, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, 
we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. So here we say after one, a one-night stay, another little boat trip down to Caesarea, beautiful port city on the coast of the Mediterranean. And we see here that Paul and the, the group of men that he's traveling with hook up with a man named Philip. Now we last left Philip all the way back several chapters ago in Acts. And we know some things about Philip from the few chapters that we studied that he was involved in. In Acts chapter 6, we know that he was a deacon. He was one of the original seven that were given the, the role in the church to handle the distribution and the administration of the, good, of the food and, and the different needs within the body so that the apostles could focus on prayer and studying the word and sharing the word of God with the people. We also know that because one of the other deacons that he worked very closely with named Stephen was put to death, stoned to death, and we know who oversaw that stoning was Saul, now Paul, who has now come, come to obviously faith in the Lord Jesus, been used by Jesus, the Lord in this amazing ministry, and now comes to visit Philip. Wouldn't you love to be there to hear that conversation? I, you you, you got to know that, that, that the Holy Spirit had to be involved in bringing that together. And the amount, can you imagine the amount of forgiveness that needed to take place in that? We don't, we're not, it's not recorded for us any other previous connection between Philip and Paul. This quite possibly could be, we don't know, but it could be the first time that they ever got together in all of these years. Paul. Formerly Saul, the one who persecuted the church so much, as it tells us in, in Acts chapter 8, it was the cause for Philip to be forced out of Jerusalem and into the ministry that would later lead to him even being called here Philip the Evangelist. So we see, again, his, that, that he's the deacon, again, Philip the Evangelist, as it's called, the one that sharing, proclaiming, the proclaiming of the good news, the gospel the evangelist. It's interesting. You would think that that word evangelist, that title would be used throughout the New Testament, wouldn't you? Evangelist. It's used three times. The word evangelist is used three times. Once in Ephesians chapter four, when it's described as a gift, the gift of evangelism, the gift of being an evangelist, it's a spiritual gift. And twice to describe two people specifically that were evangelists. Once here, and then the other time in 2 Timothy to refer to Timothy. The, the gift of evangelism. We are all called as believers to be witnesses of Jesus and to evangelize, to share the good news of the gospel. But there is a, a, the gift of evangelism that some have, that, that God uses supernaturally to be able to present the gospel in such a way that, that many come to faith. It's a gift of evangelism. And here we see that Philip, Philip the evangelist, I wonder if he had a business card because he was just, you know, hi, I'm Philip the evangelist, but a godly man, no doubt, four godly daughters. And here we also see another spiritual gift, that the gift of prophecy. We're, spoken, that we, we're introduced here to his four virgin daughters who are prophetesses, also to Agabus, who is a prophet that comes from out of town with this message specifically for Paul. Now, the, the, the gift of prophecy, again, is the ability to hear clearly from God and to share completely the message that God gives. 
And it tells, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that that gift, again, spiritual gift, it's nothing that we generate within ourselves. It is a supernatural gift given. It's something that we should, as believers, actually desire to have. But hear this. You desire that gift? Understand the responsibility that comes with that gift. We need to clearly hear what it is that God is saying and then proclaim it completely. Not holding back, not changing, again, not interpreting, not doing anything other than just saying the word of the Lord says. As it, you know, as, as it says right here, the Holy Spirit says, Holy Spirit speaking through Agabus. It is easy to say, and perhaps you've heard it yourself many times. I hear it way more times than honestly I'm comfortable with. God told me. God told me this. God told me that. God told me this. Who am I to argue that? I'm certainly not. But I, it, it, the, the problem with that, that if it comes all the time, God told me this, God told me this, God told me this, there's no accountability anymore. See, back in the Old Testament as a prophet, if you said God said and it didn't happen, guess what? You were stoned to death. That's, <laughs> we don't do that anymore. So, you know, there's, there's, there's little accountability for just to say, you know, the Lord told me, the Lord told me, the Lord told me. Just a couple of things to understand. Again, this is a desire that we should all have to hear from the Lord and to share that, to be used by God in that way. Understand, though, it is never, ever, ever for self-promotion. It's never to say, oh, look at me. God speaks to me. should never, ever for self-promotion. Look at the Old Testament prophets. I mean, all of those that were used by God in that way, they never became rich and famous. Matter of fact, most of them gave their, their lives for the fact. Notice too, and I think this is interesting, that God used Agabus. Agabus to come and do that. He had four prophetesses already there. Why didn't he use one of them? And why it doesn't record for us any jealousy that they had over that. Well, hey, we're here. What's up with you? Do you think you got a word that we don't have? God works in his way for his reasons. We need to understand, too, because Paul lays it out for us in 1 Corinthians 14 when he tells us that it's a gift we should desire, why prophecy, why God even uses prophecy. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And here's the reason, verse 3, but the one who prophesies speak to men for edification and exhortation and consolation, to build one another up, to encourage one another, to comfort one another. Now that does not mean that it's all on the surface, real flowery and everything. I mean, look at the prophecy that Agabus brings. He says, whoever, whoever owns this belt, whoever, whoever's belt this is, is going is to be tied up like this and delivered over from the Jews to the Gentiles. I, I, I don't think it even crossed Paul's mind to say, hey, Luke, didn't I borrow that belt from you? I... <laughs> Whoever owns this belt. Now, again, we look at that and we say, well, that's hardly encouraging, comforting. As a matter of fact, we can easily fall into what all of the others did in the room. They heard that prophecy. They heard the Holy Spirit says this. And what did they hear? They heard devastation. 
As a matter of fact, look at their response. And, it, and the, the, these words are here for a reason. Verse 12, when they heard this, we began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Begging, pleading with him. And when it, that word we, that means it includes Luke. It includes those that are traveling with him. Godly men love the Lord, love Paul. They hear this and they beg him not to go. Look at verse 14, so that he would not be persuaded. Their whole heart was trying to persuade him to change course. That's what they heard, devastation. What do you think Paul heard? He heard confirmation. To him, this was an encouragement because it confirmed all of the steps that had been leading up to this. It had confirmed everything. You see, it was an encouragement for Paul because first, he was prepared. He was prepared. It tells us here, look, he says, I am, not, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem if that's what Jesus wants. He was prepared. I'm ready for this. He was able to look back on everything that had in his life that had led up to this point and said, I've been being prepared and ready to go through this. And that should be an encouragement for each of us because we might all be able to sit here right now in a room full of Christians facing no threat whatsoever today on our lives for, our, for the cause of the gospel and say, you know what, I could do that. I could, I could say like Paul did, you know what, I'm ready to give my own life if that's what it matters. But none of us have to face that today, probably. But let me give you an encouragement. As a believer, if you're a born-again believer here today, if you're ever faced with that situation, you will have everything you need to get through that, even if it means you'll take your last breath and then you'll be in the presence of the Lord. You'll have everything you need. You see, here's the truth. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He does not look around and say, you know, they could do it, he could do it, she could do it, they could do it, I'll pick them. No, he looks at all of us and says, nope, nope, no way, nope, can't do it, yep. You're mine, I'll give you what you need. I'll be there. I will, I will make sure, I'll hold your hand through the whole thing. See, Paul, Paul tells us that it's God who is in, at work in each of us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Not only, not only to get through it, but to even desire to go through it if that's God's will for us. God is at work in us to do that. He's the one who's in work doing the preparation in that. He also tells us that it's his very word, the, the living, breathing word of God that we hold in our hands that will prepare us for that. When he said that all scripture inspired by God is profitable for you and I as children of God to prepare us, equip us for every good work. But there's also a piece of the preparation process that we're involved in. We don't just sit and soak. We take that truth, we take that thing that God is working in us in, the, in his, his very word, but what his word tells us to do, then we need to apply it and walk it out. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, fleshly things is what he's talking about, the old way of life, the sinful things, 
He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. We have to not just hear it. Guys, we got to do it. And then we can be like Paul, prepared. But also, it wasn't just that Paul was prepared. You see, he couldn't be persuaded because he was already persuaded of something else. He, was all, he couldn't be convinced to change course because he was already convinced that this course was the perfect course for him. You see, this word that's used here that he would not be persuaded, Paul uses in Romans chapter 8 after he leads up to it with this. He says in Romans 8, beginning in verse 38, or I'm sorry, 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then verse 38, for I am convinced, there's that word, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul couldn't be persuaded to change course because he was persuaded that that course was laid out to him by the one who loved him. And nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If this path led to death, doesn't separate me from the love of God. Couldn't be persuaded. He said, none of these things move me. Remember a couple of weeks ago, none of this stuff knocks me off course. And here we come to the big application point here I want to make for us this week. Lord's really been laying this on my heart. Because look at Paul's response. They're begging him not to go. They're pleading with him, trying to change his mind. And he, it, he says, look at verse 13. What are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart. Here's, here's Brett's revised translation of that. You guys are killing me. <laughs> what I need from you is encouragement. Don't need you to try to talk me out of this. This is God's plan for me. I need you to be strong for me. I need you to, to come alongside me in this. I need you to pray for me that I don't falter, not that I turn around. says, verse 14, the will of the Lord be done. That's what we finally just, well, the will of the Lord be done. Wouldn't it be great to start there? Now, I got big disclaimer, big disclaimer right now. What I'm about to say, I do not believe will ever happen. I believe that the grace, mercy, love of God that he has for us, he will never put us through this. But a question haunted me earlier this week. What if I stood before God one day and he said, this is the reward I wanted to give your son or your daughter, but they didn't get it because you stopped it. I wanted to use them in a, an incredible way. But because of the way you felt and your protection towards them, you stepped in the way. So I had to give this reward to somebody else. Haunted me. And I didn't want to be alone, so I shared it with you. 
But here's the deal, guys. God, God will prepare and persuade those that we love and set them on a path that he desires to use them in and give them a reward that is beyond what we could ever imagine. And if we, in our own selfishness, say, you know what, I, 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 can't, I couldn't put myself through that, letting them go do that, the, 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 the loss of that. I understand. I'm a parent. I love my kids. And if I knew that one of them was going to go off to the mission field and I would never see them again, they were going to give their life in the mission field, it would tear my heart out. But I, I'm haunted by the fact that, guys, it, it would be worse to step in the way of what God desires for, to do with them because the reward is eternal. Whatever separation and, and pain that we might have to deal with here will be way more overcompensated than when we can stand as they get their reward and glory. Guys, I guess bottom line before we move off of this, the Holy Spirit does not need or want our help doing his job. <laughs> we need to listen carefully. The Lord might give us something to share, but we don't run it through our flesh filter first. We need to share what it is that he's telling us. No interpretation. Well, verse 15, Paul again would not be persuaded following the will of the Lord. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. This man had been saved for a long time opening up his home for these travelers as they come to Jerusalem. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. So they finally arrive at Jerusalem. We know that it's around the time of Pentecost. That was Paul's desire was to get there by that time. Pentecost was one of the required feasts that the pilgrimage was, pilgrimages were required. So estimates are upwards of 2 million people are in Jerusalem for this, this, in this time frame, for this feast. And Paul is there now, and he gets together with the, the, the brethren, the leaders, James here, the half-brother of Jesus, and the other leaders and elders that are still remaining in Jerusalem. And he's sharing with them, it says one by one, he's sharing with them all of the things that God has been doing and using him and his ministry for to reach the Gentile world. No doubt talking about the work in Philippi and Ephesus and Colossae and Corinth and all of these other areas as God has been working and using him. Notice it says that they were rejoicing and glorifying God, knowing that it's a work of God as this is taking place. But notice what is said next as verse 20 continues. 
And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, as we transition here halfway through verse 20, I'm going to tell you right now, there is a whole bunch of disagreement among Bible scholars as to where these next several verses go and what they mean. And to go back to what I was talking earlier, there's only one proper way to interpret this, and that's the way the Holy Spirit led Luke to record it. And I got to tell you, after going through all of this, this is a difficult thing to navigate. So I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to try to interpret it. <laughs> we're just going to observe it and maybe pull out an application. Because here's the difficulty, the first one right off the bat, it says that there, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed and are zealous for the law. Yeah, there's the great work among the Gentiles, but James is saying there's an amazing work being done among the Jews too. But notice he says they believe and they're zealous for the law. Is that possible? To fully come to faith in Jesus Christ, believe in him and him alone for your salvation and be zealous for the law? Apparently so. That's what it, what it tells us here. So what do we do with that? How do we, how do we reconcile that? What is it that we, that we do with that piece? Well, Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he is weak and, he, and, and one is weak and eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not regarded with contempt. The one who does as, I'm sorry, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord who is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the days observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does it for the Lord. He who gives thanks to God, and he who, who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Paul is saying, guys, as believers, we all need to understand and embrace this truth. This is what separates us as believers from everyone else, that we believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We add nothing to our salvation. We believe. It's through faith. We, it, is, it is an exercise of our faith. Nothing else is involved in our salvation. So if you're a born-again believer and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you are fully that paid the full penalty, but you believe that you should worship on Saturday. As long as you don't believe that that's part of your salvation or that you're earning some extra special favor with God for it, God bless you. We have a Saturday night service. Come on out. <laughs> if you believe that, you know, that certain things shouldn't be eaten, but you don't believe that by not eating them, you somehow earn special favor with God, God bless you, vegetarians. More meat for me. I... <laughs> We need to all understand that we're not made more right before God by something we might do or not do, more righteous. Righteousness, we talk of this, righteousness is not imitated. 
righteousness is imputed. We're saved because of Christ's righteousness imputed to our account. We're clothed in his righteousness. We stand holy and blameless before him, not because we've just been so good this week, but because of his goodness that clothes us. And those especially speaking to these that are, that are Jews that James is speaking of here understand that they, not only their entire lives, but for generations have had these traditions and different things that they need to follow. The author of Hebrews, some argue that it's Paul. I'm still debatable. But some argue that it's Paul spent 13 chapters speaking to Jewish believers, explaining the correlation and the relationship to the Old Testament and the New Testament, how Jesus fulfilled all of these things and the comparison there. 13 chapters. So we see that there's a problem that James is setting us up for here. And he continues now. There's all of these thousands, he said. And notice verse 21 as he continues. There's a reason he's saying this. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? He's saying there's, there's a rumor going around that you are telling all of the people, all of the Gentiles, to ignore the rule, the law, ignore Moses, all of the customs, throw them out that they're evil, don't circumcise, that's what's going around. That's just rumor. That's gossip. And it's spread. It's amazing how far and how fast rumors that don't have a leg to stand on can run. Just spread like wildfires. Matter of fact, James calls our tongue, it can set fire. And fire spreads. He's, guys, out of our same mouth can come blessing and cursing. And then he calls us out as Christians. It should never be that with us as Christians. As a matter of fact, back in Acts 16, not only is that not true that he's saying don't circumcise, he actually had a man circumcised. We see in, in Acts 16. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and then to Lystra, and the disciples were there. a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were there in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. He wanted to take Timothy with him on his, on his ministry, the missionary journey he's going on. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they knew his father was Greek. He had a man circumcised, not to save him, but because he was saved and he wanted to use him in a ministry to reach the Jews, and he knew that that would be a stumbling block to them. Bottom line, it's just false. It's just a false statement about Paul that's spread throughout the Jewish believers by no doubt Jews who aren't believers trying to stir up more problems for Paul and his ministry. And guys, just, just here, big deal, because gossip and rumors are a big deal. They continue to affect lives today. They continue to affect the church today. I can tell you numerous times I've, I've, I've asked somebody, hey, have you seen so-and-so? And they say, oh, yeah, they don't come to the church anymore. I say, really? They tell you why? 
yeah, well, I heard they heard this, da 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 da. I said, well, that's interesting. If they'd have just asked, that's not true. Never happened. Totally wrong interpretation of something or whatever, but people hear rumor, people hear gossip. It destroys families, it destroys all sorts of stuff. Amazing the things that, that I hear. Like, wow, where did that come from? But that's it, rumors, just, just spreading. Here's the deal, guys. Gossip is a huge problem, but it can be done away with so easily. Because unlike a lot of other sins, there's two components to gossip. There's the gossiper and the gossipy. <laughs> if the gossiper does not have an ear that will listen, gossip is over. It stops. You want to stop gossip? Don't listen. Walk away. I think, I, I think it's funny, I, and I said the first service, but I, I love to have an answer. And I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a smart aleck sometimes. Been accused of that before. I think it's a spiritual gift. But <laughs> no, it's not. Just kidding. See, there it is, right there. But I like to have an answer to things, just, you know, get somebody to think. And I think, man, if I was there, I'd have said, and quite honestly, I wouldn't have. I'd have probably been in the corner. But it says here, you know, James asked this question, what should be done then? All of this, this rumor that's spreading, that what should be done then? I got an idea. Kill it. Stop the rumor. What have you been doing, James and elders and other believers here? You've heard that this is going around? Why weren't you out stopping this? You know it's not true. Guys, that, that bottom line, that's it. We need to just kill gossip. It's from, from the enemy trying to destroy, and we need to stop it. So often, though, we try to do what James and the others do, try to come up with a man-made solution, try to get clever, we see that as verse 22 continues. What, what shall be done then through this rumor that's going around? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do this what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to these things which have been told about you, but that you yourselves also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. <laughs> Again, to me, it's a whole lot easier to say, I'm not going to listen to that. But... Here's what they he line out this whole process that they're going to go. And I am sure that all of you good Bible students have been reading ahead. But if you haven't, I'm going to ruin the next part for you. It doesn't work. Paul tries this. It doesn't work. A riot takes place. We'll look at that next week. The bonds and afflictions that the Holy Spirit has been warning Paul of every step of the way, right? Remember, been saying it's coming. It's been saying it's coming. It's going to happen before we finish chapter 21. And just go back to that, just that short little section of verse in 14. The Lord's will be done. Oswald Chambers 
wrote, choosing to suffer means that there must be something wrong with you. But choosing God's will, even if it means you will suffer, is something very different. No normal, healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He simply chooses God's will, just as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. As I mentioned, there's some debate, a lot of debate, over who wrote the book of Hebrews. Many believe it's Paul. If it isn't, certainly the author influenced by Paul, but as we know, the author of all scripture is the Holy Spirit. But the human author of Hebrews penned this, chapter 10, verse 10 says, by this will we have been sanctified. This will speaking of the eternal will of God. Before the creation of the world, his will was to send his son, Jesus, to die in our place, to be the propitiation for us, to pay the full penalty for our sin. That was his will. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering, verse 14 goes on to say, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Literally, that word is being sanctified. The tenses of those verbs is clear in the Greek language. First, by this will, by this sacrifice, we have been sanctified. That word sanctified literally means to be purified, to be set apart for sacred purposes. And as Christians, we read that first part and says, by his will, we have been sanctified. We have been purified. We stand blameless before him. We have been set apart for his sacred use. And we all be like, amen, right? Well, the, the second part there, he, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are, and again, literally, being sanctified. We are in the process of being purified and set apart. And we're, we, so we understand, we embrace that, that positionally we stand perfect before him, but we understand that there's a process that we're all in. And we're amen to the first one, but the second one we're all right with conditionally, right? <laughs> As long as it doesn't get too heavy, too pressure-packed, too hot. See, the problem with the sin of pride that we all still have to wrestle with is that somewhere in each of us, there's this element that we want to know and understand fully how it's all going to work before we'll buy in funny how we don't do that with everything. We don't do that with our iPhones. (laughs) We don't do that with our, all of our gadgets. And we don't need to fully understand how all of those things work before we'll fully embrace them, accept them. How many have made a Christmas list? Come on. The little, the kids are honest enough to ask, raise their hands. You, okay. So you didn't write it out on paper, but you've dropped the hints what you want for Christmas, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we put on our Christmas list, our wish list, those gifts that we really want, right? I've never gotten a blank one from my kids. Never come back and said, hey, dad, you know what? You know what's best for me. You, you do it. You, you take care of that. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible tells us that every perfect gift comes from heaven, comes from our heavenly father, every perfect gift. 
tells us, again, we looked at this in Romans 8, that those of us believers, predestined, called ones, we have been set apart, predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to become like Jesus. As believers, that is going to happen, but it's a process that we go through. And Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say, then if that's true and we embrace that as truth and that's what we all want to be like Jesus, won't God then freely give us everything that we need, freely give us all of the gifts to make that happen? My daughter shared with me her favorite Christmas song just recently that's popular now, I guess. It's called Joel the Lump of Coal. It's a really catchy tune. I wish I'd never heard it because I can't get it out of my head. But <laughs> it's, about, it's about the lump of coal that Santa picked up because he needed to deliver it to a particular boy who needed to be taught a lesson. <laughs> but it's funny because if we're ever going to sit down and put on, write down our list, nobody's going to ever write on their Christmas list, you know what, I want coal this year. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I, I know you'd be, you wouldn't want it. You wouldn't want to let it out. But based on the amount of money that's spent on commercials for diamonds this time of year, obviously that's on a lot of people's lists. But what's a diamond? <laughs> a diamond is a hunk of coal that has been crushed and pressed and heated to an unbelievable temperature? Hmm. <laughs> Second Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Guys, again, nobody, nobody wants the lump of coal. Nobody wants the process. We just want the diamond. But here's the deal, guys. The diamond is there. And we need to trust our heavenly father in the process. Trust that, again, as Paul said, I'm, I'm prepared. Guys, we're prepared. He's preparing us for the heat, for the pressure, for the crushing. He's preparing us for that. And we need to be like Paul, be persuaded, convinced, absolutely convinced that whatever that process is, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's going through it with me. He's walking through it, every bit of it. been challenged myself so much in my, my own personal walk with the Lord as we've studied through the life of Paul and to see his determination. Nothing will set him off course because he's been called for this and he knows what's at the other end, the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness that the Lord will give to us. And we don't know. There's, there's references to that, the crown of righteousness and these types of things, but we don't know exactly what that is. But I will tell you this, when we finally do see it, we will have never wanted anything more in our entire life. 
Nothing you've ever wished for, nothing you've ever desired, nothing you've ever even contemplated will even compare to what that is, but then it'll be too late. Guys, he's uniquely selected each of us. He continually prepares us. And his, and his word that he gives to us and through others is designed to encourage us in that way. Amen. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact as we have just seen in your word that we have been set apart. We have been sanctified. And that is your will from eternity past. That by that one offering, your perfect offering, your life exchanged for ours, we have been perfected for all time. But Lord, also, we embrace this process that you are bringing us through. Like Paul, Lord, we don't understand it all and we don't know what awaits us, but Lord, we trust you. Lord, our desire is to be like Paul, that nothing could persuade us to get off course. Knowing that you have uniquely called us and prepared us for every step. Lord, our desire too is to be used by you. Your, your word tells us as we saw that we should desire this gift of prophecy. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to be used by you to encourage one another. But Lord, our desire is that we would never get in the way of the work that you desire to do in someone else. So Lord, challenge us in this today and change us that we would hear completely and clearly what it is that you desire to be shared, Lord, that we would be faithful in delivering that and that alone. If you're here today and you have never taken that step, you've never invited Jesus into your, into your life, you've never trusted in him and him alone, his completed work on the cross to pay the sin debt that you owe, I'd like to invite you today to give your life to him. You see, it's his will, his, his eternal will, all the way back before he created the world, before he spoke everything into his existence, into its existence, he had his eye on you. And he set in motion a plan to pay your debt so that you could have eternal life, that you could have your sins forgiven. It's a matter of simply receiving that free gift from turning from your sinful way to following his way for you. And if that's you, you just go before him in your heart and you say, God, I, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have not followed you. I have not lived a life that pleases you, not followed your plan for me, but I want that to change right now. I turn from my sinful life, and Jesus, I turn to you. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sin, that you would come into my heart, into my life, wash my sin away, and give me that gift of eternal life. And Jesus, that you would guide and lead me from this moment forward, that you would prepare me for whatever lies ahead. Because I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from your love.
Jesus, we thank you for that truth, and we sing your praises together now. In Jesus' name.